Thank you so much. I want to praise Skylight Books uh, to the skies because this is a wired microphone. A wired microphone is a good microphone that a person can use with pride, you know, and enjoy the crisp sound of the cardioid, you know, uh, what do you call the element that's in there that does the microphone job and everything. Okay, get one of them and then and then stop because I swear to God I will break it. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I won't actually. That's just a figure of speech. I wouldn't break anybody's stuff. That's not, not my style at all. But uh, but but yeah, if you, but yeah, exactly. Because if you don't threaten, no, as we all know, as we, as we all know, only only threats are effective. Um, uh, uh, what was I talking about? I was talking about microphones. A lot of book events have wireless microphones, and they sound like garbage. And you go, wow, why does everybody look like they didn't have a good time? Well, it's the microphone. It's the wireless microphone, which you've taken over. And I think wireless microphones are really like a profound metaphor, right, or a symbol, because, you know, they are convenient. They mean that you are not, you know, tethered to your spot, though you're not really tethered with this either. I go quite a long ways with a cord. You know, I just can't, can't go all the way to the back, you know. So... I trade for convenience. I trade everything else that was good about the microphone. <laughs> so, I, I, anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. I'm very happy about this microphone. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a sure, sure is a comp- sorry. Uh, I was, I'm going to tell you another microphone story. I was uh, until fairly recently. Uh, because the mountain goats move very, very slow. We don't make any decisions in a hurry. You know, like some people, like their first album is recorded with a lower budget, and then as soon as somebody listens, then they go into a big studio. As many of you know, I waited about 10 years to make sure it was really going to be something I was doing, you know. And, uh, and we, don't, we, we don't add new people super quick, you know. Then there was Peter and me for a long time. Then find a drummer who's cool, okay, add him, and then finally Matt, and, you know, probably another five or six years before we add a fifth person. But, uh, but uh, we were in um, Florida, in St. Augustine, Florida, before I owned any of my own microphones. I was touring for a long time, just whatever they had in the house, that's what I was singing through. And I was happy to be in Florida. This place is Club Cafe 11. It's right across, it's on the beach. And so no matter how your show goes, when you're done, you just cross the street and look at the ocean. It's awesome, right? And uh, I was very happy to be there. The guy who ran the club was named Ryan, one of the chillest guys in the world. So, man, let's play this show. Let's do this. We don't need a sound check. We were here just last year. We know how it works. It's fine. So we go up, you know, and I start playing. I lean in. And if you've seen me, you know, I have a beer or two when I play. And, and I, I, you know, I get kind of up close like this when I'm saying, you know, I try to do a little mic titty. And I go like this. And, oh, God. That microphone smells bad, you know. But I was playing music, so I didn't have time to interrupt and give a long spiel about it. I'm just like, and you finish the song, people clap. Well, then you don't want to say thank you. My microphone smells terrible, you know. So I just, I just sort of sucked it up on that and say, if your face is next to a bad smell for 90 minutes, right, you really get intimate with the finer notes of the smell. It's, it's not just perfume that has woodsy notes, you know. Also, whatever it is. And, you know, and Ryan, like I say, is a very easygoing, seems like a very classic beachy stoner type dude. And, and you know, I go, dude, what is with the microphone? It smells it, like, I don't even know what it smells like. I go, oh, yeah, we had a hardcore band in here last night. <laughs> That's the end of my stories about microphones, for real. Uh, this book, it's hard to pick scenes to read from it because it is a book of reveals. It's a book of curtains being pulled away. But a lot of people uh, don't want... Sp- surprises spoiled I think as we culturally have done with a lot of stuff we've taken that concept a little too far you know war and peace if I tell you that it takes place in Russia and that's a spoiler for you then I'm sorry but 
you'll deal with that. You don't want to know like the final reveals and stuff, but I've tried to pick some stuff up. But yeah, what you need to know uh, for the sections that I picked upstairs uh, is that uh, a fellow named Jeremy Held is a young man who works at a video store. He's not that young. He's 21 or 22. And he works at a, a video store in a town called Nevada, which is in Story County, Iowa, where I used to live. Um, it's next door to Colo, which is the town where I used to live, at whose high school I'm reading next week, and I'm really excited about this. Um, but Because uh, it's right down the street from my old house, which they knocked to the ground and is now a Habitat for Humanity house. But, um, but, but so Jeremy works at a, at a video rental place uh, in the pre-DVD age. DVDs existed at this point, but they weren't, you didn't see them in the stores. It was mainly still VHS and Nintendo 64 cartridges. Um, the store I based this on, I don't remember what it was called, but it was in Nevada, and we would rent 64 cartridges from there for three days. You know, I played Zelda or Mischief Makers. Um, but, um, but he works at this place. There's nothing much going on in his life. He lives with his father. Uh, his mother uh, died in a car accident uh, when he was 16. And uh, one day, uh, somebody he knows brings a tape in and says that there's something weird on it. You know, there's like a scene that doesn't belong on it. And he, uh, he forgets to look at it. But then he does and uh, look at one because there's another complaint and they start investigating these interpolated scenes which eventually seem to point toward a woman uh, named Lisa Sample who lives in a neighboring town called Collins. That's what you need to know for these two scenes. Um, The owner of the store is a woman named Sarah Jane Shepard. Back at the store, Sarah Jane had locked the front door. Jeremy knocked, confused. It was the middle of the day. Somebody else complained about she's all that, she said after letting him in, so I watched it. It was still playing on the in-store screen. I thought you already took it home. I did, but I didn't uh, and watch it. Oh, jeez, said Jeremy. You didn't tell me. I told you it freaked me out. I'm really sorry. No, it's okay, said Sarah Jane. But, but what? She reached for the remote and rewound to the spot. It was the outbuilding. The door was open. When the camera jumped... Jeremy saw, clearly, because he was looking for it, the work table. But that wasn't the focus of the scene, of course. The action in this one was under a tarp in the middle of the room. You couldn't say how many people were under it. Maybe two, possibly three, possibly only the one, the hooded figure from the chair. That was how Jeremy would come to think of it for his own sake. Some idea of continuity made it easier. But... In fact, you have to make a lot of assumptions to connect those earlier scenes to this one at any level deeper than their shared location. The figure, or figures, under the tarp, buck and thrash, sometimes with a rolling movement, sometimes in violent jerks. You can hear breathing and a sound that registers instantly as fingernails on canvas. With less than a minute left to go, the action steps up. A work boot at the end of a denim-clad leg enters the frame, and prods a few times at the tarp, seeking a point of contact. A grasping hand shoots out from underneath, a flash of color. Then the boot kicks the tarp three times, very deliberately. The kicks land with great thudding force. Someone underneath the tarp cries out, incoherently, a frightened, choked stream of burbling vowels. Closer to the camera's mic, a man laughs and clears his throat. Meanwhile, under the oilcloth, whoever's there is regrouping. Is it rising to its feet, singularly or collectively, rolling over, undergoing some sort of change in mass? No one can say. 
is too dark to see much, then she's all that blinks back, bright as day. Jeremy, what is this? Sarah Jane said. I told you it freaked me out, said Jeremy. I can't have this in my store. Should we tell somebody? He meant the police. It was the only idea he had. I guess maybe, said Sarah Jane, as she ejected the tape and put it back into its sleeve and headed back to the break room. We could just return it as defective, Jeremy said after her. Or that, she said over her shoulder, though in point of fact, she neither called the police nor returned the tape to Northern Video, her distributor, for a replacement. Phone records and computer logs obtained from the Nevada Police Department show no calls or emails from Jeremy Held, Stephanie Parsons, or Sarah Jane Shepard during this period. The Ames Police Department's records document several phone calls from Collins, years later, of course, but by then, new people were involved. Strangers. Variables from the cloudy, distant future. The one thing you can never plan for, Mom used to say. Unexpected guests. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'll read another little section, and then we'll get into some Q and A stuff. Um, this uh, this is from uh, uh, Sarah Jane. Does figure out by looking at, at printouts of, of some frames uh, on the tapes where she thinks they're taking place, and she she meets a woman who lives in the house that she thinks the, the tapes uh, have been shot at, though she hasn't uh, confronted her about this yet. And they're talking on her porch. Her name is Lisa Sample. Hanging from a nail at the end of the front porch was a hollowed-out gourd with a hole in it for birds. House wrens will set up shop in a gourd inside of half a day if you hang one up. They nest in winter, and their young fledge in spring, and then the nest sits ready for another bird to come clear it out and start again. Wasps, Lisa Sample said from her chair near the door when she saw Sarah Jane approaching the gourd. They'll come at you if you hang out over there too much. Sorry? Wasps. There used to be birds, but between nests, some wasps set up in there. We had them when I lived in Madison. Look, she pointed at the hole, it was partially obscured by a pale tan resin, leaving a half-moon-shaped opening. It's her brood cells. Sarah Jane jutted her neck forward a little and narrowed her eyes, trying to get a better focus without having to draw nearer. She noticed a few small yellow bodies, lazily drifting in and out of the hole. It made the gourd feel heavier in her sight than it had when she'd been imagining robins or nuthatches. Birds nest lightly, she thought about so many wasps crowded into one place, a great throng displacing some small family of two or three birds. She saw the muddy netting of the nest half blocking the hole, dusty run over from all the activity inside, and she noted, finally, a wet spot at the bottom, a darkening patch about as big as her hand. Honey? There is no wasp honey, but the gourd had been put there for birds. Madison, she said, just for a short while. It was nice, though, said Lisa, behind her now, craning in voice low. I think they got one of the babies before the mama left. The gourd will rot clean through when it gets a little warmer. They eat birds, Sarah Jane said. Her stomach heaved a little. No, they eat mosquitoes. They'll sting anything, though. I guess if something happened to a little bird in there, the mama wouldn't really be able to pull it back out through the little hole. That's terrible, Sarah Jane almost said. But she stopped herself, because she wasn't sure it was what she meant. Maybe it's terrible, 
the dead bird inside the gourd, the gourd full of wasps hanging from the rail on the porch, the wet spot spreading on the bottom of the gourd. But maybe there was a better explanation for the spot, something about dew points, an organic matter, and the lifespan of an empty gourd. Nothing was really certain. She reached into her purse. I brought two. I didn't want to answer a bunch of questions, she said instead, handing Lisa the tapes, their bulky cases dully reflecting a little sun. She heard the hum inside the gourd grow a little louder and dutifully took a step back. They will swarm, said Lisa, turning discreetly, tapes in hand. Sarah Jane followed her inside. They stood behind the screen door, watching as a few wasps ventured out to see if the shadows they'd felt required a response. I had to run inside real quick a couple times. Couldn't you just call Orkin and get rid of them? said Sarah Jane. But Lisa had a dreamy look on her face. The sentry wasps were tracing patterns in the sunlight. I guess, she said quietly, still under the spell of the lazy figure eights the wasps followed in the air. But it seems kind of mean. It's their home now, you know. She closed the door and turned, heading for the cellar steps. It's just nature, she said conclusively, but also, as it seemed to Sarah Jane, sadly, as if somewhere in the question of the birds and the wasps there was something to be regretted, but nowhere that any reasonable person might fix the blame. Thanks, y'all. So, um, yeah, we just, I've told this story a few times, but I like it. Uh, When Ian Mackay came to Ames, Iowa, when I lived there, uh, he, uh, if you don't, Ian Mackay was the singer from Minor Threat and later Fugazi. And then in between those two bands, he was in a band called Embrace. Um, And then after that, he was in, uh, what was it called? What's that? The, yeah, the Evens. Yeah, and the Evens record is really cool, actually. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when he came to Ames, uh, you know, he was doing some sort of speaking thing, so we went. And I wonder, what's he going to do? Is he going to give a lecture? You know, it's like, well, maybe, because if you go see Fugazi, you ran the risk of getting some lectures, you know. And so, but he got up there, and he sat down, and he said, so there's two ways we could do this. We could... Um, I could just talk about, you know, uh, D.C. and the scene that I grew up in, um, or, or we could just get into it. And everybody goes, you know, it's, a, it's an addictive phrase. Everybody goes, yeah, get into it, right? And so he just did Q&A for like an hour and a half. I like that phrase that kicks it off, well, let's get into it. <laughs> Anybody? We've got to get into it, y'all. <laughs> yes? Um, as, as you said, a lot about reveals and both this and Wolf White, it seems like there's a very sort of parsimonious dueling out of it. Yes. Um, how do you how do you figure out how much to give when? Well, I don't know it all in advance. I learn it as I'm writing. So in, in a, in the question is, how how do I know how to dole out the reveals that I do? Um, and I don't I do I outline, but I leave a lot of space to surprise myself. So the re- reveals are kind of spike points for me where I'm writing and what happens, and it really inspires and drives me to answer more questions about that. So it is. I mean, uh, the big ones in this book, most of them are, were big surprises to me uh, when they came along in the middle of a paragraph. I'd be going. It is a very quick process where you go, what if, oh shit, <laughs> and you type it and you feel like you've done something that you weren't supposed to do because you know, your paragraph kind of tells you where you're going with it. There's basic grammar and narrative rules that unless you're Blake Butler, you're, you're following them, right? And, uh, and so, uh, 
so yeah, it was you know, but but uh, but I don't I, I don't know most of them. I have a rough outline of where I'm going, but I'm always surprising myself, and I think that is why the ones I've had so far have big reveals. But I'm also anything that I find myself doing repeatedly, I always want to challenge that and twist it a little bit later. Yes. Um, a lot of your a lot of your songs are like little mini narratives. Yes. Um, do you? find the process of writing a longer thing like a book is it just sort of a difference of scale or is it like a whole different process it's totally different process it's um there's i mean all i think all writing is to some extent improvisatory right at some level but the way i write songs for one thing i've been doing it so long that that you know it's but it was this way in the beginning too it's like i'm playing and i ad lib right i ad lib something and then i hammer it into a meter if it's not in a solid enough meter but it happens very quickly and it, it more closely resembles improv comedy than anything else where i'm just making something up real fast and making it happen well the idea is still very fresh and i think if a person likes what I do, one of the things they like is there's always that feeling of freshness in what I write. Like you can tell that that it, it, that, that there's a burst of creation in it. It's not it's not a formal piece. I mean, there's formality to it, but it's not it's not a studied piece. It's something that has a, a physical energy to it. Was writing books, the freedom that you have within a long narrative is infinite. Like you know, when you're writing, you can repeatedly kill and bring back to life, and kill and bring back to life, and kill, 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 kill over and over. You kill. You kill everybody in the book if you wanted to, and then say, "Well, I got that out of my system." You know, throw those pages away and bring you all back from the grave, right? You could conceivably do this in songs, but I can't imagine doing it. Like songs follow, songs are, are like, uh, you know, um, uh, if you see a cat chasing a laser pointer, the laser pointer is the song, and the cat is me, right? <laughs> it's like, except that eventually I win, <laughs> whereas the cat, as we know, is doomed to sorrow. And uh, but. Uh, but with a book, it's just it's such a giant space. There's so much you can do. It's, it's it's very and there's many differences also in the in the in the process. So I do think there's rhythms to both. Yes. Why was it important to you that the story be set in rural Iowa? Well, it was just where I, the question is is why it was important that I set it in rural Iowa, and it was just sort of I mean I I think I had remembered the video place and I wanted to do something in there, and uh, I handed in Wolf in White Van. And my editor, Sean, had the manuscript. I'd been working on it for so long, he'd only ever read the first six chapters that we made the contract on. So I was really excited to see what he would think of the of the draft when I handed it in. And he had another manuscript on his desk ahead of mine, right? Which is fine, uh, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But not, totally not in resentments to any writers who might have their manuscript ahead of mine. You know, there's a bunch of real good writers. And uh, but the thing is, I'm impatient. You know, I'm like normally when I play a song for somebody if it's new, you know, within 24 hours or so, Peter will play it and go, "Oh, dude, I like this one." <laughs> Usually, he'll send back a bass demo. Right? It's like I'll and I waited a week and nothing happened. And hey, did you get it? Yeah, yeah. No, I have a big one. Uh, so I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'm sitting around. I've been writing every day for a couple years at this point. So I just wrote a scene of a couple Iowan guys talking to each other because I wanted to capture these Iowan rhythms and the way that Iowans talk about where people are. Right? I was kind of giving shit to my relatives uh, in Iowa, my, my in-laws, who they talk a lot about where people are, and I love it. And at the same time, it's like it's not how we talk out here where I grew up. It's a different style. And especially because out here, so many of us are not from out here. Or if we are, we're from Claremont, but now we live in West Covina or wherever. 
Southern California is a, is a mobile place, right? You, you go from place to place. In Iowa, it's less true. People stay put a lot more, and that was surprising to me. And I wanted to look into my own reactions to that, how it struck me as comic at first, but I, then I, th- I realized, no, it's about actually Iowa probably is less heavily impacted by uh, divorce than California, which is like the divorce capital of the world when I was growing up. So, Yeah. Don't you pick which movies to reference, especially She's All That. Like, did you go through a few different options? <laughs> yes, I did. Because So here's the thing. The first one I picked was Targets, which I've seen. right? And I wanted to describe the action in it. And I wanted to you know, and talk about the plot. It has this creepiness to it. And he's got Boris Karloff. I'll use any excuse to talk about Boris Karloff. He's so great. Um, and But then I, then I had to research. Then I had to say, well, okay, what was on shelves in the late 90s uh, in a small video store and what, what, what might people be renting you know besides just the blockbuster I mean Titanic was big right but, um, but I forget I think it was late but so I looked them up I mean Wikipedia you know it's like uh, movies released on VHS in 1998 is a page right? and you go no no no, she's all that. Well, that sounds pretty funny, right? And the, the thing is, I didn't see this movie, right? Uh, that was that's not my style. <laughs> and so, but a lot of other people did. And as soon as the book was announced, people went, "Oh fuck yeah, she's all that. I love that movie." Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought if I was genuinely cynical, I'd be like, you know, figure out what people love and reference Mystic Pizza. I bet they love Mystic Pizza, you know. And so, but so I picked ones that to me had, in the case of that one, I thought it was funny to mention. And then I would read synopses, or in some cases, watch them. I watched um, Blue Chips, and I uh, what else? I watched Targets a bunch of times. Uh, I, but I had already seen that one. But like the fact, knowing that Kiss Me. That song, Kiss Me, by, I think it's Sixpence None the Richer, right, is in it. That inspired me, especially because their story is so weird. This is a little detour, but so back in those days of the music business, if a band had a song like Kiss Me, where a person who's been working in the music business for 10 years hears it and goes, I know this is a hit, right? I know this is a hit. But he sends it to radio, and the radio people had a lot of power in those days, and maybe they were like, yeah. Not really feeling the sixpence on the richer, and there's no budget to bribe them, right? Uh, and so, what you would do is you would send that band on tour to play in like Walmart parking lots right, and malls, right? This is how Tiffany got famous in the 80s, right? Um, send them to play because sooner or later, two or three people are going to go back into the Walmart and go, hey, who, who was that band? Oh, yes, no, we have their thing, it's on sale. And that's how that, they toured that song for over a year before anybody noticed it. Can you imagine how tired of it they were by the time it got famous? And that's when they really had to start playing it, right? <laughs> and so th- that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> any, yes? Do you have any abandoned novels or partial novels that you wrote before publishing Wolfen? No, I really, uh, no. Uh, do I? Well, I mean, because I didn't really have any ambitions to to do it. I mean, there was Master of Realities, a novella, and then there was a little, like, a handwritten notebook of about five pages called God Gave Noah the Rainbow Snake. Um, but that was kind of just a stream of consciousness thing. But I didn't think of myself as writing novels. And then when Master of Reality came out, my agent, Chris Paris Lamb, an awesome dude, wrote and said, I'm a Mountain Goods fan. I loved your book. I didn't know you did prose. If you ever have any idea to write a novel, give me a holler and we'll see what we can do. And I had, after write the same thing as with this, after I turned in Master of Reality, I'm waiting to get notes. I'd been writing every day for a while. So I just started tapping together uh, what, what became the, uh, uh, the last chapter of Wolf and White Van. I, I wrote that first, just on a day, on a morning when I didn't feel like writing songs or, you know, 
but I always like to work. So, so yeah, but I didn't know. I have a bunch of little st false starts that will be incinerated with my body in the next three or four years, uh, but, but nothing from before. No. Yes? Do you write um, every day or do you carve out a certain time? I'm not like diligent. It's the question is, do I write every day? Um, like I don't, I don't say, well, yeah, every day from nine to twelve. But I try. I have an office that I keep, and it, I don't do music in the office. Uh, I just do prose in there. I read books in there, uh, and uh, and I write in longhand in there. But I go. I try to go in every day. It doesn't always happen, especially when the mountain goats world is kind of taking over. It's very hard. It's not. It's hard to do both. It's hard to find time. And mountain goat stuff is so high energy and requires me to talk so much that the stillness of writing. You, know, you can write music in that frame of mind, but but prose is reflective. Writing prose is kind of an amazing meditative, and then later energetic. When I'm revising, you stand up and read it out loud and pace and get excited. But but uh, but I do try to when I'm home, when I'm not on tour, I go into the office every day if I can, uh, and almost always in the morning. But that has more to do with I mean, I've always liked working in the mornings, but now I'm a parent of a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so my ability to string good sentences together after about four in the afternoon is pretty limited, unless you fill me full of beer then I can ad lib like this a little bit but uh, but I can't really write good stuff uh, in the afternoon so I go in around 9 and I usually come home around 1 and uh, put the baby to sleep and then I threaten to go back to the office and don't <laughs> yes uh, a lot of the book is really emotional and it's about grief yes a lot of the characters are actively like tamping down their grief yes so how do you go about writing a story that's well, I mean, I think so. I think that's 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 the governing reality of a lot of people's grief is that you know that you don't you're not very expressive about it, generally speaking. But again, y'all live here, and I grew up here, right? Like, I know here we are pretty performative about how we feel about stuff. That's one thing that I think is wonderful about Southern California. Is how I grew up is like, and when I moved to Iowa, right? That was a, the people who met me, who I worked with. I could see that they thought it was hilarious, right? They'd say, "How are you doing, John?" Go, oh my God! I, let me tell you, right? the whole weekend I was like, and they're, and they're looking at me, going, "You know, they, no, the answer is fine." <laughs> <laughs> but they wouldn't say that. They just sit there, they look at you. I always say, "Oh." Right? That's thing. You know, and O is a very intense, dense word in Iowan parlance. It's totally awesome because it takes you three years to go. Oh, O means, "Are you all right?" <laughs> but. Uh, but I mean, that was, uh, I, I'm always wanting somewhat to, well, for one thing, when I write books, I want real people in them, right? That's one thing I want is even if it's a guy with a deformed face, I want you, who does a play-by-mail game, I want you to believe in him. I want you to, him to strike you as real. And one problem I have with a lot of modern fiction is it's sort of as if every character is famous, you know, they all speak in very long sentences that, that are really good sentences, you know, and, uh, and they have a lot of stuff figured out and they share their opinions really readily and then nobody, you know, walks away while they're holding forth on some opinion that nobody even asked them to talk about. And, and so that's, that's what I wanted to write because I think for most people, they carry their grief more privately. You know, maybe 5% of it you do at the funeral, but, you know... With the death of someone like Linda Held, that would be a long grief that you would feel for a long time. And you would never fully repair the hole in your life, you know, uh, if you'd built a family and a part of it went missing. But not only our culture, but most cultures are not going to encourage you to 10 years later 
be talking about the space where that grief exists. It's just something that's inside of you. And that's what I wanted to talk, because I think that's it's as valid a part of the grief as the part where you're rending your garment and wailing at the funeral. So, Yes? So it's not just the way they talk, but like if you talk to an actual person in certain sports, you can say, oh, I'm going to go into a whole monologue about just something they know about. And all your characters have like these interests, like the Star Ford, Wolf and White Man, and the yeah. Jeremy, just how Rand's old nest like Gord would have the How do you... You just, like, know everything? No, no, no. It it depends. I mean, Wolf and White Van, uh, a lot of that stuff that I was, like, casually interested in as a kid or attracted to and didn't fully go into that I studied more. I gave Sean a lot of my interests, right? Um, But, like, with the Wasps, I just, you know... Well, I can tell you how that one happened. I mean, the thing is, I'm, it's, it's, I was very resistive when I was a young writer when teachers always say you write from experience and you shake your fist at God and you go, but I don't have any experience. Right? <laughs> you know, but, uh, but the right is like your experiences, however, however modest they might be, probably have a lot of lessons in them if you look long enough. So I'll tell you how the wasps got there. I have a, um, or had, this is a long story. Um, I had a, a, a gourd birdhouse that we got at the farmer's market in Durham where I live and we hung it up and some birds nested in it and it's really cool because you don't, you don't watch the whole thing happen but you see it when you're leaving the house for work you say oh the birds are they're picking up sticks they're bringing them in they're little twigs and it's, it's miraculous right and you, you see this happen and then you forget right that they did this because what are they doing they're nesting right and, and, the, and, the, and then one morning you might be out of the porch having coffee and you're dee, 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 Oh my fucking god, there's babies in there. This is really cool, right? It's really nifty. Because you can hear them, you don't want to bother them, you know. They've got a whole sacred thing going on, and you see the male bringing food because the, the mom is taking care of the babies, and, and the male bird brings, you know, and he, he goes, like you see it happening. He, he goes, he brings one, and he hands it to the mom, and she takes it from his mouth, and he goes back out. And, and you know, my wife knows more about birds than I do, and she described to me what's happening. And it's really sacred and amazing, you know. And, uh, and then the young fledge. And, it, and and it's still, and you leave it there because you liked it. But now it's full of a nest, and the types of birds that use it aren't aren't the no what do you call them like the hermit crab type birds that that will use somebody else's nest. Nor will they clean it out. And then one day, you notice that the bottom of the thing is wet. A wetness, generally speaking, if you're a horror guy, you've read some Lovecraft, right? I mean. Obviously, Lovecraft is expressing his horror of the female body, but it, but he does a very he does a very good job of conflating the concept of wetness with horror, right? It's like and uh, and uh, and so you see this. I did on my back porch, right? Uh, this this wet spot getting a little bigger every few days can give me the creeps. So I, t- I wonder what happened. Is it, it must be getting moldy in there. Well, I should fix that, but you know, I it's not a high priority, right? And then I did see what I thought were bees, right? Uh, and uh, and what is bees? Is, is it honey? It can't be honey. Bees, they, they make honey, they don't occupy something, you know. And then there were more and more of them. And I had a young child, so we called a, a, a pest guy. I said, hey, there's some bees have taken up residence in this, in this gourd. I need you to come and take care of these bees for me, if you would. They sent a young guy. Right, uh, kind of guy who looks like he he has a very beat up El Camino that he didn't pay much for, right? And uh, and he was a nice, chatty dude, North Carolina dude. And he goes, "No, we'll take right care of it." He's got a thing. He, and he he looks up, 
and he, he gives it a poke. I had given it a poke before and felt the weight of it, right? And, and he gives it a poke, and they come out, and he takes off running, and he goes, Fuck yellow jackets, right? And, <laughs> and I, I go across the aisle, what do you mean yellow jackets? Well, th- no, that's a whole different thing. He says, uh, I came for wasps, but those are, are bees, but yellow jackets, they sting repeatedly. They don't die after they sting you. They can sting you a bunch of times. So you guys go inside. Right? Okay, cool. And I don't know if Orkin taught him to do this or what, but we went inside, and we're looking out through the door, and the guy is the least scientific thing I ever saw. He takes, like, a, like a broom handle, and he, the thing hung by a rope, so he took the rope and, and knocked it off the nail, and it goes flying. Well, now yellow jackets are mad. They're very angry at this guy, and, and probably a lot of other things, too. There'd be a lot of issues to work out. And, and so he knocks the thing down, and then he stomps on it, and he stood there, Right, go doing this. <laughs> and he looked so just bonkers, right? And and he was doing it I I imagined that he was young. <laughs> he was swatting things I come out after ten minutes, he says, Well, I think I got them all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and well, this is a sort of experience that leaves the mark, so you think about it later. <laughs> that's, that's where that came from. But, but you can also, what I do, Wolf and White Van is kind of about this, make up stories about stuff. You know, it's like, uh, you look over to a bookshelf, and you say, well, the employees probably put all those there, but what if somebody else, what if vegan passport is there because one of my fellow veg people is trying to, like, very quietly insert some propaganda about world travel, right? <laughs> but maybe they're doing that because they're a member of some vegan cult, and part of what they do is place books surreptitiously, right? You know, it's like just telling little stories about stuff, making stuff up. And then you look it up to see whether or not it, there's truth in that and do a little research. So. Yes? Um, so, what was causing the wetness in the gourd? In, in the gourd? Yeah, like, um, I'm pretty fascinated by that. I don't know, because none of the yellow jackets survived to tell me. <laughs> I mean, presumably, uh, uh, excrement, you know, whatever, whatever they're... Whatever they're What's that? No, that dude was not really that knowledgeable. I don't think he knew something about. But uh, I mean, my my assumption is that it is like you know is byproducts of whatever you know, of of their living space, you know. But it could also have been tears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Something that affects really strong throughout all of your work in terms of subjects like your novels or your characters. Thank you. And no matter what situation they happen to be in, it's always interesting. I feel like you could write about two guys in a cupcake shop and it would still be really amazing. Thanks. Um, how do you like, catalog and determine what situations are like, what settings are going to be, what the actual subject matter is? So I, I don't know, but what I do know is there's something that people kept asking me during this interview season where I learned something about one thing I do, is that my characters have jobs, right? I do not write about people hanging out at coffee shops who don't later have to go to work, right? Um, my, it's, it's, it's just how I think of people. It's not, it's not a, I think I'm misusing this word, it's not polemical, it's not programmatic, right? I'm not trying to do that in order to say something. But it springs from a belief that when I think of you all, I assume that those of you who don't have jobs are looking for jobs, right? That you want to be working, you want to be, that it's part of who you are, that work is what, one thing we do as people, right? And so uh, it defines us in some way. So, so it's the first thing I think is like, how does, when I have a character, my first question I have about it is how does he pay rent? How does he make rent? You know, what's he, you know, how much, 
it, how often is he able to eat at a restaurant? You know, because when we lived in Central Iowa, we didn't. You know, uh, it was not a. You know, we could eat out once twice a week, but we didn't have enough coming in to be constantly going out like they do in the movies, right? Nobody ever eats at home in movies except for one scene, right? So, uh, so I ask questions like that, and that that determines your scenes if you look at how most of us live our lives, right? You know, you wake up in the bedroom and you go down to the kitchen or you go to the dining room, and from there you go. Well, maybe to a factory, or you go to a coffee shop, or you go drive a FedEx truck, or whatever. Well, where do FedEx guys have? Well, there's a big place where the trucks all get issued, and so I think of these places, and then I put people in them. That's it's where, and it's, I just think of where people go to and from through the course of their days. Yes. So speaking of places, actually, one thing I really appreciate about that uh, your cast book and some of your songs is that you do use like actual existing yeah. places. How do you balance like the fact that there is actually an architecture there, there are actual stores there, and the fact that you want to have this creative freedom to make your own? So it's very different from the songs and the books because I'm older and wiser. Um, the thing with the books is like so far when I write stuff, you know, uh, Wolf and White Van takes place in Montclair, which is right next door to where I grew up in Claremont. It's like the, I can picture where I think uh, Sean lives, right? I know, I can see that place. I drove past it many, many, many times. Uh, and all the places that he goes, when he goes to the liquor store down, it's actually on Holt um, and all this stuff. And then the next one I said in Iowa, where I also lived, and in western Iowa, which I knew a little something about. Um, and the whole region was stuff I knew. But the songs, the geographic stuff in the songs began as a way of giving shit to my friends, uh, my peer group in Claremont. I assume people do this throughout Southern California, but it is like it, it was a huge, almost I want to say a trend. No, it's bigger than a trend. It was it was it was, it was a, a, a custom in Claremont to to talk about how you were going to leave. Right, because this whole scene is very bogus now. You know, all, all the cool people are gone, and I don't, I can't even. You know, I was in San Francisco last week. Well, people got it going on in San Francisco. It's very cool up there. There's a lot of cool stuff. None of this bullshit that we have in our scene. So I'm going to San Francisco, man. I was talking to a guy up there. He said he could find me some work. So you better get ready to say goodbye to me because I'm going to San Francisco. <laughs> 100% of my friends were delivering versions of this spiel. And I was thinking, you're not going anywhere. I know this. None of us are going anywhere. Uh, you are not going. You're not moving. You're not going to move, right? And, uh, and I started writing songs where people say, you know, oh, my life's going to shit and I'm going to Alaska. Right? And so, so all those places were just like, were selected for place names and were places I hadn't been that you then infuse with the power of your imagination and of just the sound, the beautiful sonorous quality of place names you know now as i say i'm older and wiser and i've been a lot of places so when i write about places it's different now it's it's more reflective and with a book especially you want to be getting stuff right i'm going to iowa in a couple of days i want people to tell me that i got it right whereas when i'm writing going to alaska nobody from alaska is gonna say oh yeah the part about how the animals can kill you that's you know it's a, they're not gonna they're not gonna say that <laughs> yeah way back there yeah, so speaking of the time you lived in Iowa, I'm curious, were there any sort of, or did you have any imagination back then as to some sort of creepy, like, underbelly? No. No, this the thing is, like, and it was this sort of thing that I was really 
that I was skeptical of doing in this book is I didn't want to be doing Twin Peaks, right? I mean, Twin Peaks sort of, there's nothing wrong with Twin Peaks, it's great, right? But, but Lynch's take on these things is like, well, the truth underneath this is that it's rotten, right? Is that, you know, is that it's not clean, that it has, like, is it, that it has a thorny, chthonic uh, uh, underbelly, right? I, I, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, you know, all the, the thorny stuff that you see is only the first layer. What's underneath that is human grief, right? And is one person's story of how she's dealing with that. Uh, but uh, but yeah no the I mean the first time it was in Iowa like there's a little bit I talk about where uh, you drive past cornfields and you imagine what people might be doing in them right they, what you could do first time you see a bunch of cornfields if you grew up here they do look like you think of the children of the corn and you think of good fellas right and you think uh, yeah I mean, you could leave a body in there right I, I think it's I think it's a natural Californian thing to start thinking about where you can deposit the bodies right and uh, and so but you do I mean so you, you go wow. I mean, and especially me. Uh, first thing I thought when I saw corn is like, if I die out there, no one will ever find me, right? And so, so you think about those kinds of things. Uh, but, uh, but no, I mean, after you live in Iowa for a little while, you, it doesn't. But the first time you drive through, yeah, like the giant silos, all that stuff, you go, what is it? it looks, you see soybeans. Do you know what a soy plant looks like? Neither did I, right? And I'm driving, and it's like there's the, they all grow very close to the ground, and they're green, right? And, and it just looks like, what are they planting there? What, what is it? It's even heavier when you move to North Carolina, because tobacco plants look like Martians, right? They're just like these wrinkly, flesh-like things. But, but, uh, but yeah, so, so no, when I lived there, uh, it, didn't, it stopped seeming other pretty fast. But I also am very intentionally, I know if you've never been to Iowa, I might as well be talking about the moon. You know, it's like, it's a very distant place. Every four years, when the caucuses take place there, the news stories do these bogus, like, simple small town Iowa. A place where old values and blah, all this garbage, right? It's like, it's like it's a boilerplate thing that they read from a script that they haven't changed in 72, and it doesn't apply to the life of everyday Iowans, but it's an effective trope, right? So, oh, uh, yeah. What other writing do you think is influenced you the the question is what writing has influenced me the most. I read, um, I mean, I think for this, a guy named Robert Aikman, a horror writer, uh, and the things, a lot of his stuff I haven't read in years that if I read it now, I might say, well, no, what influenced me there is my imagined memory of how it affected me when I was younger. Like Dennis Etchison is a horror writer who was also always in the year's best horror uh, anthologies when I was 12 and 13, and his stories left a giant impression on me. Um, but uh, but but for the, for sentence lines, it's Joan Didion. You, know, you always want to be thinking, would Joan Didion be proud of the sentence, or would she at least say it was okay, right? Because <laughs> uh, she's the best. So. Yes. Uh, when I saw you for Wolf and White Van, you were talking about your D and D character. Can yes. Starting playing back then, where is that character now? And do you <laughs> we don't do long campaigns. We don't, uh, uh, especially we. If we were doing D&D then, I don't think we... We were probably playing more Tunnels and Trolls or something because the, our group has a few people who like D&D and then a, a, and one person at whose house we play who has never liked D&D. And he's a, ga- he's a game designer, right? But what he likes about games is the opposite of what a lot of... I mean, D&D is a numbers thing and there's, there's a... Uh, it's not really machismo, but, but there is very much, you know, the, the you know... It's a limiting. It's not about. It's not really about exploring your character. Whereas what Jason likes, he, Jason Morningstar, he writes games, and what Jason likes 
is games that tell stories and where the characters have room for growth and have losses, experienced losses and stuff like that. His game Night Witches uh, is it's about these uh, uh, Soviet women fighter pilots uh, who had to fly these garbage planes on interference missions, right? And uh, and you cannot play a male in this game. You're going to play one of the Night Witches and every single session you have taken a little more damage, right? Uh, and that's a pretty amazing thing uh, as compared to in D&D where what do you, you level up Right and well, it's different. Um, so, so I don't remember what happened to that character. We 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 tried it again, uh, but but Jason does not want to play D and D. But I did get to go to Wizards of the Coast the other day. Really, dude. <laughs> they, I, I mean to tell you, they have a lot of D and D stuff in there, <laughs> and it was really really. I was I did the D and D podcast. I was like just freaking out. It was really cool. <laughs> yes. Um, so you've created a lot of art for life. But it also seems like you consume a lot and read a lot and stuff. Um, and it, I think those two things would feed off of each other. But do you ever find yourself challenged to decide to keep a balance between whether you're feeling more creative or more like you want to... Yeah, no, I always want to try and be taking in more than I'm making. But that's one thing about when it becomes your day job, right? Uh, it's not that it's not that I'm drawing a paycheck on it every day, but it's like you you want to keep going, go keep current. Um, I mean, the problem with reading, especially, is for me anyway, that I don't read on devices. I don't read on my phone or on an iPad. I, I read books, right? So if the computer's open, if I'm reading, it's probably just trash. You know, it's like in the newspaper, but. But it's more likely just social media stuff that really doesn't nurture. And but you know how, like, turn around and that's nine to noon, right? That you spent doing that, you know. Uh, so I try this year, especially. This hasn't been my resolution exactly, but I'm trying to read before I crack open the laptop in the morning, because I'm gonna die without finishing all the books I have. I, I will die. I'm not a fast reader. Uh, people who work in publishing are though, and it's amazing. It's like they, it's like you know when you're in college and you have to read a book in a week, so you do. Right, and then you graduate, and you don't have to do that anymore. So you take your time. You read it on the train or whatever. People in publishing, they're they're still at the like, no, I got to read this one between nine and, and eleven because I have to start another one that I have to at least be halfway through by four. Right, and it's 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 enviable to me. But I, I try to read a little every day. Always looking toward the back. Yeah. Uh, so VHS tapes have a certain mystique to them. Yeah. Uh, I think especially in terms of horror and the potential for creep. Um, what do you think that is? Where did that come from? Um, why is tape creepy? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to say because I suspect it's almost iconographic in that why it, why it's creepy for me might be different. Why it's creepy like for me, part of it is that those stores are gone, and I think the first thing I think is like, where did all the tapes go? You know, it's like, and I think of when they were dying, those stores, you'd go in and they'd be having a sale and you would have missed all the good stuff. So it'd just be all these movies you were never going to watch anyway. And at the same time you go, well, it's 10 for a dollar. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I mean, I still have a bunch of those from when VizArt closed in Durham. Uh, and, uh, and I think there's something about I, anything that goes extinct acquires a little creepiness. Now, it's not entirely extinct. There's people who still watch them. I still have them. You know, um, we have our VCR. I don't really use it. The last time I put something into it, it immediately started eating the tape, and it was a precious tape of, of the only performance of uh, my band, the Seneca Twins, and I went, ah! <laughs> So I took it out, and it's going to fix that. But, uh, but, but yeah, there's something... Uh, 
I think for us culturally in America about extinguished media that, that acquires, I mean, there's it's ghosts in there. It's ghostly because it belongs to the past. And who lives in the past? The dead live in the past, right? So, uh, so that's what I think is that, that anything that extinguishes, you know, it's the same as a lot of cheap horror movies will use an old crackly record sound to indicate something creepy is about to happen or something old. Old things get to be creepy, right? So, uh, yeah. At what point did you figure out the title of your book, and how do you generally approach the process of titling books or songs or albums? So, I think Wolf and White Van was always called Wolf and White Van. Um, this one was initially called Nevada, Iowa Video Hut, <laughs> and. Uh, and I, I really liked that because I knew everybody would say Nevada and then I would be cranky and then we could have a balance in the world, you know, because when <laughs> something makes me cranky, you know, then God is happy. So, um, but, uh, but with this, I, you know, I was mulling and mulling and I remembered seeing a sign that said Universal Harvester when I was fairly new to Iowa and it struck me as creepy. It sounded like uh, Harvester of Sorrow, the, the Metallica song, right? And, but Universal Harvester, right? Who's that? That's the guy with the fucking scythe, right? That's, that's, yeah, that's the Universal Harvest. There's only one person can do a Universal Harvest and that's, you know, a titanic, malevolent god, right? So, so that's why I, I wanted something that evoked something like that maybe but that you couldn't pin down. Right, and also, but I did mean for Universal Harvester, the Universal Harvester is the harvest is is the death of something. It's also you eat off the harvest, right? But it's also death, right? And it's it's what what precedes winter, and winter is a cold and difficult time. Uh, and I wanted to bring all that stuff. Harvest is such a huge word that you could do that, and, and universe is also big. So I wanted something that was that was pretty big. So okay, I think we get two more as I'm supposed to do. Um, always yes. Uh, so you've written great music, uh, multiple books. Uh, is there a kind of storytelling that you really admire? What do you want to attempt for uh, kind of storytelling in Afghanistan? Is it both with like TV? So I don't know. I got approached to maybe to be like as involved as I wanted to be in making television, right? Which is where a lot of writers are working in television now. And the thing is, I have two children. It's like when the TV people come knocking, those people have deep pockets, right? It's like if you get into that world you'll work very long days but there will be considerable recompense for it but as we kicked the ideas around i wasn't feeling connected to it and it struck me as a as a place that was going to involve a lot of working with other people uh i mean in my van that's different we're all we're a band of brothers and one sister but uh but but uh but yeah i know the idea of like of that, I was like, and 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 how fast the ideas. I was talking to the dude, and the ideas really they move really fast. And I always want to go. Well, let's let's put it in a drawer for six months. <laughs> they don't put things in drawers for six months on TV, you know. And also, you have to move the whole family to the West Coast or justify why you have to shoot it at home. So I don't see that happening. Um, screenwriting, just generally speaking, I, I don't I don't think that's my gig, you know. Um, yeah, I did talk with a guy about doing some dance, some stuff for dance, which I would love. It would be a huge honor if I found the space because dance is the. But then I think when I go see dance, do you know much about you know Paul Taylor? He's a choreographer. Um, 
we have a big festival in Durham called the American Dance Festival. It's one of the biggest dance festivals in the country, and it lasts a month uh, in the middle of summer. And I saw what was happening. I was home. I'll go see some dance because I had seen somebody had choreographed some Mountain Goats songs in San Francisco, and I had a really emotional response when they brought me to the studio. So I, so I went to see Paul Taylor, and he did a piece called, uh, I think, Promenade. And they started to dance. And I just began to cry so hard, right? I couldn't even understand what I was experiencing, right? It was so... But some of that had to do with the fact that that is not my lookout. I was not sitting there, as we often do, if we're listening to music, going, it's like, oh, I see you brought a harpsichord. Well, I know a little thing or two about a harpsichord. It's like, you know, musicians are terrible that way. They listen to music as if they were being asked for their opinion, you know? And you have to grow out of that, you know? But with dance, I'm such a pure spectator, you know? And that's And that's a... There's no way that being a reader is not as great as being a writer. It's better. It's like that's where, that's just the pure, you are the recipient of pleasure if you have the stuff that you like in your life. And so, so sometimes when I think about dabbling, I will be careful. Once you get involved with something, you know, then your relationship to that thing is necessarily going to change, right? You don't get to publish books without learning just how many goddamn books there are. It's like, the, you know, it doesn't seem special once you have a thousand of them on your shelf, you know, and it seems less special. So so I think I'm hesitant to dabble more because the stuff that I'm a spectator with, I like. You know. All right, well, I think one more, right? Um, yes, fine. Um, so we talked, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that uh, publishers read fast and you don't, because I read this book less than a day. Yeah. Yeah, I still haven't finished it. (laughs) (laughs) But I want, but but like pacing, uh, and and, and it's because of pacing that I read it so fast with this book at the start, and I just, you know, you just kind of dive right through it. Um, But the pacing with this book and the pacing with uh, Wolf and White Man, I find that to be so important, and the pacing before her is so important. Yeah, yeah. The question is about like, when you go through the redrafting process, is it like, have a more linear sort of like, this is all revealing myself, whatever, or do you go back and kind of revise with that? So in revision, like getting the pacing right, I mean, I pay really close attention to pacing in the first draft, you know, the way that, like one thing, if I'm good at something in prose, one thing that I am good at is uh, ending a section before a double line break, right? The, 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 the rhythm of those terminal paragraphs and endings of chapters, that's something I feel like I have a little affinity for. Um, but maybe you didn't give enough information because you're paying so much attention to the rhythm, and there's rhythm, and there's melody, and there's content, right? And so when you go back, one thing you do is you say, you read through and you say, well, that seems kind of sudden. You know, I knew it was coming, so I just wrote it. But then you go back and you plant a seed somewhere. You mentioned it a little earlier. And these are like shop tricks, right? They're not, they, uh, when you ask the question, like, are you sure you want to know? It's like, you know, that you go back and you go, well, mention that person a little earlier. Just have somebody mention them in passing, right? In a, con- in a little four lines of, of conversation, write them as good as you can so they're interesting, you know. But their actual function is secret to you, and it's actually so that you will have somebody's name in your head. So when you hear about this, is I think Chekhov is the one who says if there's a gun on stage in the first act, it has to go off in the third act. Uh, and uh, and then I've revised it. If there's a gun on stage in the first act, then everyone must die. Right? So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.